0: We'll see. Hey, my, my name is Pastor Jason, and Dave mentioned earlier. Um, is this microphone on? Can you go? Oh, there it is. Great. Um, and so what I get to do is I get to help lead our staff team. I get to oversee some of our finances and kind of take whatever Pastor Dave's vision is and help implement that. And so we're really excited about this morning. I do want to draw your attention to one thing. If you've got your bulletin this morning, inside your bulletin is a little tab, a little tearaway. We invite you to take some time in the service and fill that out. You can either do it online with a QR code or you can fill it out. It's an opportunity just to us to get to know you a little bit better. And it could be that you want to talk to a pastor or have some questions about today. We would love to be able to talk with you about that. There's a way you can indicate that on the tab as well. At the end of the service when you exit, there's going to be a couple of people holding baskets. If you'll just take that tab, drop it in the basket. That's a great way for us to be connected with you. And then we're able to get you some information and so forth. So we're really excited about that. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 about middle of the New Testament and uh, we're going to be there for a moment and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7 and so if you're one of those people that likes to get prepared you can go ahead and do that one of the greatest pleasures I have is being a father and I have had the chance and the opportunity to help my three teenagers learn how to drive. And so when our first one was about ready, he said, Dad, I I want to do a driving lesson. I said, great. And so I had this plan. Like I had mapped out the the route we would take. I had kind of making some notes on, on what I would share with him, what great, vast, incredible knowledge I had of the road and of the car and how to do that. And so we get in the vehicle and he's in the driver's seat, I'm in the passenger seat and I'm like, okay, so check your mirrors. Adjust your seat. And I give him the lecture. You know, the lecture that every dad gives a new driver. Like, this is a big responsibility. Don't run over anybody. Right? That kind of lecture. And so we talk through that. And, and we're ready. Like, I've got this plan. And he's heard me. And, and so I said, are you ready to go? He said, yes, sir. I said, we'll turn on the card. He goes, just, just one question, dad. I go, what's that, bud? And he goes, which one is the gas and which one is the brake? And I thought in that moment, I need to go back to the basics. And so the resurrection is the basic reality of our faith. And so Easter Sunday morning is kind of this big day for churches. I, I was talking to a guy in our, in our community. He's like, hey, isn't Sunday like the Super Bowl for you? And I was like, it's kind of like the Super Bowl for us. But more than that, it's the foundation by which we base our faith, that the resurrection is more than just a Sunday, It's an important day because at the resurrection, it's this great truth that Jesus died, was buried, and then he rose again. And in his ability to to conquer death, he conquered sin, and he conquered pain and suffering. And as a result of that, moving into the resurrection, we look at the resurrection as this incredible moment, not just in the scriptures, but an incredible moment for our faith. For it's there that we can trust the Lord. That we see that Jesus was more than a man, and sure he was the fact, the Son of God. That as it was once prophesied that he would raise from the dead, so it happened. And we can trust this all full well. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in there, we're going to see the Apostle Paul kind of write about this truth. How important the resurrection is, how important Easter is. Really is. And says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared... And it goes on and begins to talk about who he appeared to. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 other people. And it's this great picture of exactly the importance of what the resurrection, resurrection is. Paul describes it. He goes, it's of first importance. It's of highest priority. It's the most significant thing I will ever be able to share to you. That's what he's saying to the church here at Corinth, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose Again, and 500 more, more people saw him after the resurrection. We in the church, we call this, these truths the gospel. That Jesus died for our sin, was buried, rose on the third day, and that all who would believe in those truths and place their faith in him shall receive the forgiveness of sin and have eternal life forever and ever and ever. That is The gospel And the scriptures say that the scriptures said, if you look, if you know your scripture, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, it says that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. Now the prophet Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth. Time and time again, we see that the scriptures are pointing to these gospel truths. And if the resurrection of, is of the utmost importance, as Paul says, then the resurrection needs to matter to us. So, as believers, we have much to celebrate. Today's a celebration. It's not only full of bright colors, but it is full of bright hearts that we get to come and, and worship the Lord for what he has done on our behalf. So for those of you who know Christ, it is a wonderful day. But what about those who may not know? What will you do with Easter? I mentioned earlier that I am a father. And as a father, knowledge is kind of a a unique concept. That sometimes as a dad, you have zero knowledge of something. But sometimes as a dad, you, you have a little bit of knowledge that really can hurt you in the long run if you don't do anything with it. When Brooke had our first, she had them late in the evening, and so it was the next morning, and I'm in the hospital room. Sunrise is coming up over at Baptist Hospital, and Brooke's asleep, and I'm super groggy because I did all the work, you know, the night before. And, uh, and the nurse comes in, and she wheels this little baby burrito in that plastic tub into our room. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And then she does something unthinkable. She leaves. And it was the first time that it's just me and Brooke and this baby alien in the room. And I began to think to myself, I may have made a mistake. I don't know anything about raising kids. I I had been a a, a pastor of of teenagers and done student ministry for a lot of years. But by the time I got them, they had grown out of that. And so there we are, I'm nervous. I, I begin to think all the things that young dads begin to think. And uh, our son began to kind of cry a bit. I began to hold him and then realized his diaper was full. And so I began to do something that I had no knowledge of doing. Now, parents with great experience and knowledge know this, that when cold air hits a little baby boy, there's this magic yellow fountain that appears. I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, I was met with a welcome present for my brand-new baby boy. Had no knowledge. What about when we think through the lens of faith. You see, there are, are three different kinds of people here. Some of us in this room know our faith. We know Jesus. And He's become Lord and Savior of our life, and we've given our lives to Him. Some of us have no knowledge of Jesus, no knowledge of faith. We may have come today by the invitation of a friend or a family member, and it's a little weird being here. Some of you have a little knowledge. But you've chosen not to put a faith in that little knowledge. And so, what that little knowledge has done for you is absolutely nothing. In fact, it's given you a false hope. We've been talking some time uh, in and among our staff about a term. And this term is kind of raising itself up among teachers and pastors and churches. And the term is the unsaved Christian. That there are those who regularly attend church, maybe once a year or a dozen times a year or whatever it may be. And they call themselves a Christian, but truly they don't have genuine faith. An unsaved Christian. And it kind of looks like this. This person may check the, the data box on the census tab that says, what religion are you? And they're going to check Christian. Or maybe they, they might call themselves a Christian if someone were to ask them what values do they uphold. Maybe they grew up going to church or their family went to church, and so they have an idea of a sentimentality when it comes to the church and Christian ideas. It, it could be that you're a patriot, that you love the good old USA, and we were founded on Christian morals, and therefore you call yourself or identify as a Christian. And see, the unsaved Christian, or another way of putting it is the cultural Christian, they do this, they admire Jesus, but they've never acquired Jesus that Jesus is a good person, he's a good idea, he's doing great things, but truthfully, you've never committed your life to him. And so I just wonder, could it be that today, there might be some of us in this room who have great faith, some of us in this room have no faith, and some of us in this room kind of fall in that last category of, kind of cultural Christianity, kind of the idea of being an unsaved Christian. You identify as Christian, but truthfully, if we were to evaluate your life, if if Jesus were to put a microscope on your heart and say, hey, if you do know me, you would say, I I don't know that I do. I agree with you. I respect you. I admire you, but I've not acquired you. And why is this a problem? Why is this idea such a big deal? What, What pain does it cause to be an unsaved Christian, be a cultural Christian? Well, the truth is we can't just put Jesus on a shelf or ask him to take the wheel. For at the end of our life, if that's all you do, you will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bible, I'm invite you to turn there. It's the first book of the New Testament. And, and Matthew chapter 7 is unique. Because Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, his followers, uh, his disciples, a crowd that's kind of going where Jesus is going. Jesus has put them on a, on a hillside, a mountainside, and he is preaching to them. In fact, this sermon, three chapters long, is sometimes called the greatest sermon ever told. And in it, Jesus describes different ideas and topics. He, he hits on the issue of anger. Anger. On, on not judging other people. It hits the idea of, of how, what do you do with worry and anxiety? How do you manage your life when it's difficult and when it's hard? But toward the end of this sermon, Jesus teaches on those who will enter the kingdom of God, those who will enter heaven when they die. Grown up as a young man, I loved the idea of church. I didn't start going until I was eight at the invitation of a friend and at that, I remember thinking it was so unique. We went to a, to a meeting where, where boys got to look at the Bible and see how fast they can get to different books of the Bible. And that was the first time I remember opening the Bible. But in the Bible, we see many things about who Jesus is. We see that he loves people and he heals people and he has a great heart, a great passion, a great mercy that Jesus is loved. And we see all these wonderful, heartfelt, warm things about Jesus. But in the scriptures, we also see some moments where Jesus says some hard truths. And sometimes these hard truths can be offensive. But it's in these hard truths where we see not only the love of God, but the wisdom of God. And so I want to challenge us as we kind of unpack a hard truth this morning... To be thoughtful of Jesus has not changed his character in this hard truth, but rather he is explaining in greater detail who he is and why he came to be. So in Matthew chapter 7, toward the end, he describes the kingdom of God. And what he's going to do is he's going to offer three different sets of examples of those who will enter the kingdom of God. He said there are two ways. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. Those who enter the narrow gate, those are the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he's going to describe two different kinds of fruits. There's good fruit and then there's bad fruit. Those people who bear good fruit, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's the idea of two different kinds of builders, those who will build their life on the sand and those who will build their life on the rock and the faith of the word. Those people will enter the kingdom of heaven. But in the middle of that is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And I take time to read that this morning with you. Matthew 7, 21, 4. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's in these verses, Jesus wants his followers to kind of examine themselves, kind of examine where are you in your reality of what the kingdom of God is Are you choosing just to profess allegiance to me, or have you truly given your heart to me? And it speaks right at the heart of kind of this idea of culture Christianity. See, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want or need admirers. What he wants and needs is acquirers, those who've acquired him in relationship. So do you admire or have you acquired? And I think whether you are one or the other radically changes how you celebrate during Easter. Three simple truths this morning as we kind of unpack these couple of verses. One, there is a reality of the kingdom. There is a reality of the kingdom. And verse 21 tells us what that reality is, that not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not all will enter. There will be those who can't. There will be those who are not included. There will be those who will be left outside the kingdom of heaven. I want to be clear this morning. One, this idea is not God's desire. God's desire is that all men, all women, all boys, all girls throughout the entire reality of time that they would enter the kingdom of heaven. That's his desire. And we know that because God sent his son Jesus to pay the, the penalty of sin on the cross that we might have life. Jesus is very clear in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For I have come and seek and save that which is lost. John chapter 12, verse 46, he says, I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes may not remain in darkness. For I have not come to judge the world, but I have come to save it. This is the purpose of Jesus. Jesus does only what God the Father wants him to do. God's desire, Jesus' desire is that all men and women would come to know him as Savior. But the truth is, it could be his desire. But it's really up to us to make a choice. And it's a choice that we must make. And if we don't make that choice to accept him as Savior, we're not going to be allowed in to the kingdom of heaven. That is certainly the reality. There are a lot of people who think, well, you know, don't all ways of life eventually lead into this idea of heaven? Don't all faiths kind of eventually come into one path where there's going to be eternal life with God in and, and heaven? Isn't that the truth? Well, it's just not. The scriptures don't teach that. In fact, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man come to the Father but By me. Acts 4, chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 12, it says this that that there's no other name under heaven which by one will be saved. Jesus is it. There's no plan B, there's no other option. Very clear in in Matthew, chapter 7, that the reality of the kingdom is that not all will enter. So, not only is there a reality of the kingdom, number two, there is a rejection from the kingdom. There's a rejection from the kingdom. Now, I don't know how many you guys have been rejected. Ninth grade, first date, her name was Tanya Stinson. She had three seats behind me in Mr. Stonecipher's physical science class at Texas High School in Texarkana, Texas, and she was a looker. But I didn't know her. So I did what every ninth grade boy does. Let's go sit in a movie theater for two hours and not talk. That's what we did. So we went to the movie theater, and I'm not sure why this happened, but she chose a movie It was kind of a tearjerker kind of movie. And if you know much about me, I kind of wear my emotions on the sleeve. And so uh, about three-quarters of the way in, I'm like tearing up at this movie. Like there's tears falling off my cheeks. I'm 15 years old. She looks at me, cold-hearted, by the way. And if you're out there, Tanya, I apologize. I hope you've (laughs) given your life to Jesus and things are better for you. (laughs) But she, she laughs at me. End of the movie, I I stand up, but I did not realize in my nervousness, I had crossed my right leg over my left for two and a half hours. So when I put my foot down, like I fall face down on the ground, like gum, popcorn, all of it's right there. She looks at me and she laughs again. And then she doesn't wait for me to like pick myself. She like walks out of the room. We get to the curb and she says this, well, my ride's here. And walks away. And that was the last time I ever spoke to her. Not goodbye, not thank you, not you're an idiot, total rejection. You know, we've all been rejected at some point, whether it's been a job or a team or a date. But spiritual rejection is something at another level. And I don't know why you came today, but I want you to know this. God's desire is not to reject you. That choice really is on you. So how do you avoid That kind of rejection. Well, it's real simple. We have to be careful to realize that for some of us in this room, we may call him Lord, Lord, but our hearts are not with his. And Jesus is real clear at that point of rejection. He says, listen, depart from me. I don't know you. You see, of of the followers in the crowd that were following Jesus, many knew him. To call him Lord is one thing. To recognize like he's somebody unique and someone who deserves a title. But to call him Lord, Lord probably signified the fact that they didn't just know of Jesus, but they walked with Jesus that they didn't just become someone they saw from afar, but they were close to him. They were engaged in his ministry. They did things for him in his name. And that's what the scripture says. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty things in your name? Now, in the original language, when this sentence is written, it's it's kind of written a little differently. And we might translate it like this way. Surely, since... I prophesied, cast out demons, they did mighty things in your name. Shouldn't we be allowed into the kingdom of heaven? Specifically, his fathers did some incredible things for the Lord, but they didn't know him. They never trusted him as savior. Doing good things does not give you special favor with the Lord. Jesus is clear. There are those who are just religious There are those who are doing good things because that's what good people are supposed to do. You may have morals that kind of guide you. There are those who look at Jesus from afar or at a distance, just admire him. But being a good person doesn't get you into heaven. And his rejection statement hurts. Depart from me. I never knew you. Coming to church doesn't get you to heaven. Giving a tithe doesn't get you to heaven. Being a greeter, working preschool, God bless you if you work preschool, doesn't get you into heaven. Only faith in Christ. And this is not a common idea. This is not an idea that we've just struggled with in modern times. This is a, a reality that they have struggled with since Matthew 7 was written and into today. In fact, the 17th century preacher George Whitefeld said it this way, do not flatter yourselves of being good enough. Because you are moral, because you go to church, you say the prayers, you take communion, and therefore think no more is required. You are deceiving your own souls. Writer Danis Sarah says it this way. To modern-day culture Christians, just like the religious people of Matthew 7, the idea of being saved isn't necessary. Just do good things. After all, there are good people who live moral lives, and culture Christians have some idea of faith but they don't consider themselves an atheist, but their God is a generic deity rather than the God of the Bible. They could be called almost Christians. Listen, doing what we're supposed to do isn't enough. Being a good person, being a moral person isn't enough. Identifying with the church, identifying with Jesus isn't enough. Being an almost Christian isn't enough. We came across this story of one of our own a few months ago of a man named Paul who's here today and he came to the realization that he was just an almost Christian, doing a lot of good things in the church, serving the church in unique ways. But the Lord was working on him, reminding him that he had not given his heart to the Lord. So I want to take a few moments. Let's watch this video of Paul's story.
1: My name is Paul and I was a cultural Christian. At the age of six, um, I originally thought that I'd ask Jesus into my heart. Um, I was in church, grew up in church, grew up in the South, uh, Christian home. We were at church every time the doors were open. I lived that life that I thought I was a Christian until the age of 49. And throughout that time period um, in church, I was a Sunday school teacher, deacon at another church, just did what I was supposed to do and what everyone knows you're supposed to do. Um, so I was at church listening to Dave preach, and we were in that service, and the Holy Spirit was just working on me. Uh, the Holy Spirit was saying, Paul, you need, to, you need to get this right. You've had questions throughout this entire time, over 40 years. Uh, you need to nail down your salvation. And on the other side, I would hear another voice saying, Paul, you're fine. You nailed that down when you were six years old. Don't you remember that? What are people gonna think? You know, you've been living this life and and now all of a sudden you're gonna go down the aisle and become a Christian. You're gonna ask Jesus into your heart. What are people gonna think? And then the other side would say, it doesn't matter what people think, Paul. You, You need to make this right. And so Dave was preaching. I wasn't really hearing anything he was saying. I was hearing the Holy Spirit talk to me during that entire service. When the service was over, I turned to my wife Kathy and I said, I need to go talk to Pastor Curtis. And she said, okay. She didn't know what it was about. We hadn't discussed it. Um, so I went and hunted down Pastor Curtis and we went into his office and he said, hey, what's up? And I said, you know, at that point, I was just overcome with emotion because the patience that that the Holy Spirit that Jesus has had with me over this, this time period. And So I told him my story said I need to nail down my salvation I need to do that today and so we prayed we shed tears we prayed a couple weeks later for obedience in Christ you know I wanted to make my story known and we had a baptism in the venue service uh, two weeks later following through on that obedience in Christ so I can tell you today that I'm hundred percent certain that I'm a Christian I'm going to heaven when I die
0: Some of you really understand Paul's story. You've worked really hard to become an almost Christian, but truthfully, you hear that one voice in your head saying, you're not, and the other voice saying, well, what are people going to think? And I would just tell you this, one of the greatest realities for Paul is that he went from rejected to accepted. You see, Jesus doesn't want our attendance or our money or our service. He wants us. And that's the truth. Jesus wants our heart. Now, I know some of you may be thinking this, that if, great, if there are people here who are doing good things and they can't be allowed into the kingdom of heaven, what about me who's done bad things? And you may be saying here going, great, I knew it. I knew it. I, I knew that God would reject me. I knew that the church would reject me. I under, I'm i so totally frustrated by that. And I understand where you may be coming from. But And I would say this. Many people think that God's going to reject them because of they of the sin of their life, too many bad things that they've done, that God can't or won't love them because of the sins that they've committed, because of the things they have thought, the things that they've done, the struggles that they have. And I'll just tell you this. This is the truth. God doesn't reject you because of what you've done, good or bad. He rejects us because of what you haven't done. You know, several years ago, as the church was kind of getting on the scene here in America in the last 50 or 60, 70, 100 years or so, there's been this idea that when you came to church, you'd have to behave so that you would believe and then you could belong. But as we read the scriptures, we see that Jesus does something radically unique here. Jesus helps people belong that they would believe, and as a result of that belief, they will behave jesus spends more time with sinners in the scripture than he does preachers Jesus' fellowship and friendship with thieves and robbers and prostitutes and the marginalized and the unclean he's showing us that his love transcends sin that it's not about how awful you've been or the things that you've done that has very little to do with the reality sin is in fact just sin that's what separates us from the lord What separates us in a a unique way is what we're talking about here. It's not what you've done. It's what you haven't done in believing in him. God is reaching out his arms and he's saying, listen, I want you to belong to me. I want you to believe in me. And you know what? That worry of you, if I can't act right, I don't have all of it together, that will come later. There is a rejection of the kingdom. But remember, it's not good or bad. It's what we've not done that rejects us. And the last thing we'll do this morning is number three. There's a requirement for the kingdom. There's a requirement. There comes a day where Jesus will ask, why should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? And the requirement for the kingdom isn't doing good things. It's not being a good person or being religious. The requirement for the kingdom is not religion. It certainly most is relationship. And we get that from chapter 7, verse 21 and 22. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will be allowed into the kingdom. The requirement is the ability to do the will of the Father. When a person has trusted Christ. The relationship begins. And in that relationship, the spirit of God is now living within them. Romans 8 tells us that. And and that spirit enables them to know and to do the Father's will. That God's love is in that person's heart, according to Romans chapter 5. And as a result, it motivates him to obey the Lord. Obedience to the will of God is the true test of faith. The test of faith is not works. It's not words. It is Knowing Christ in that relationship, that we might be doing the will of the Father. What's missing for many is relationship. There's another story I want to show before we close today. And I, I think what's interesting about this story is, is Lisa had been obedient to God in a lot of ways, but she realized at a point in her life she didn't have the relationship that she needed. She was struggling. She was doubting. She was wondering about God's presence in her her life, and she had done so many things, but what she didn't do is relinquish control and surrender to the idea of relationship. So I wanna take a few moments and watch Lisa's story.
2: I'm Lisa, and I was a cultural Christian. I grew up in church my whole life. I even attended a small Christian school and when I was 12 years old, I um, asked Jesus into my heart and I was baptized, but I just didn't live my life as I should, I was not reading my Bible, I wasn't praying, just coasted through life. When I was 14, my dad passed away and I had prayed all the way up till he took his last breath for God to heal him and just kind of rocked my faith uh, because he healed him in a different way than what I was hoping for. And I graduated high school, went to college, went to Washtenaw Baptist, was a Christian studies major, and I still wasn't praying as I should, wasn't reading the Bible as I should. It was probably about six years ago when I really started getting this feeling that I needed to question, or was questioning whether or not my faith was true or not. And it just kind of packed away of, you've already done that, you've already been baptized, you've done that, you're good, everything's okay. And it wasn't until three years ago when I was, after Charlotte was born, it was one of those late night newborn feedings, the church was also going through experiencing God. And I had read the first chapter, and I had cried out and asked God, I just need to know that you're there, that you hear me, that you're listening, and that you're there for me. And... The next day, I had a college friend send me a message to Facebook. She said, I know this is going to be weird, but you've been on my heart. And God told me to tell you that He's there, that He's listening, and that He loves you. And that's when I knew that God was real. I started reading my Bible more and praying with more meaning, and then Fast forward to about a month-ish ago, I started having the same feelings, the same doubts of whether or not I was truly saved at 12 or not. And I um, had talked to husband Eric about it, had talked about it with my best friend Sarah, and then I talked to my D group, just trying to work it through. And they suggested that i probably need to go talk to Dave, just kind of unpack everything. So I did and I say that I am saved. It was three years ago with that midnight moment and it's nice to not have that doubt anymore. I have the solid faith and the confidence and the peace that I am saved. I know where I'm going and that he is listening to me.
0: Lisa's gonna get baptized next week in the worship center service. And I think about Lisa's story, and I think about so many who doubt and struggle and wonder if God is listening. Can we just be reminded this morning that God is listening? God hears us. and God knows us. The root of her doubt was a lack of relationship, and that could that be the case for you? In the words of Billy Graham, we are going to heaven not because we are good. We're not going to heaven because we worked or because we paid. We're not going to heaven because of what he did on the, because of what we did, but what he done on the cross is what gets us to heaven. And all we have to do is receive it. And it's so simple to receive that Christ, to receive Christ, that millions stumble over its very simplicity. You see, God made it so simple that children can believe. He made it so simple that a blind man can believe, that a deaf man, a disabled man can believe, a man of any race can believe, a man of any nationality, of any language can believe. And all God says you have to do to get to heaven is just believe. Now that word believe is more than you may think. It means commitment. It means surrender. It means giving everything you have to Jesus Christ and trust him alone for the forgiveness of sin and your salvation. And that's why we celebrate Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection, that he gives us what we need to save us. He redeems us. He gives us hope and peace and assurance and mercy, and that's why we worship. And my prayer for you today is not just that you admire Jesus, but that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you've acquired Jesus as Lord.